Good morning, Bethel Church. Don't you love it when it's overcast and cool on a Sunday morning? Uh, it saves us like two degrees in here, right? And we'll take the two degree, you know, benefit. So uh, I want to welcome you this morning. If you're new, uh, we're so grateful to have you. We're glad that you would join us. And uh, there's a, in your bulletin, there's a tear-off strip there. And we would just ask you to, uh, if you would just kind of write down who, your name and who you are, and, you know, whatever uh, information you'd like to share with us, we'd sure love to have your prayer requests so we can pray for you. Uh, this is just a tool that we use so that we can get to know you, so that you can find this church to be home and a meaningful place of belonging and connection. So uh, please take advantage of that tool. Let us know that you're here. And I'll remind everybody, that's not just for visitors, but you guys know this, right? Everybody, every single week, right? You all fill this out because it's helpful to us. Uh, we love you. We want to shepherd you. And this is one of the ways that we do that. So please fill that out for us. Um, I've gotten word from our Ethiopia team that we prayed for and commissioned last week. They've arrived in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and they've begun uh, their days. Uh, this morning would have been uh, worship, or actually last night. Our last night would have been their, yeah, you get it. The time is off about 11 hours, so they're at an inverse schedule to uh, what we are. Uh, I can already see this is going to be a different trip than the ones that I've been on previously. Um, you know, when, when I first went in 2006, um, we were grateful to get maybe uh, one occasion or two throughout the week to be able to email a message home. And now we're, we, you know, we've got pictures and videos and, and live events on Facebook, and it's just live. It's as though we're there with them. Uh, but it's fun for me to see those familiar places and uh, faces and friends and whatnot. There's a prayer card uh, that you can pick up at the uh, welcome booth to remember to, to pray for those in Ethiopia. And along with it, there's another one for our youth team that's leaving here this, next, this upcoming Sunday going to the Czech Republic. So we're going to have two teams out at the same time, and we need to bathe that in prayer. But I say, praise God, we've got uh, folks going out to share the gospel. So that's amazing. And um, I also want to let you know two other quick announcements. First of all, um, this afternoon at 2 o'clock at the Chattanooga River, uh, we're having a baptism service, and we have nine people who are coming forward for baptism, which is awesome. And uh, yeah, and I, I want to encourage you, please come. Uh, please come. I, I'll, I'll even tell you in advance. It's going to rain on us. I just about can guarantee it, right? It's going to rain on us, so we're all going to get baptized. Some of us will be sprinkled, and uh, you know, others will be immersed as, uh, as one ought to be, as we proclaim here at a Baptist church. And uh, so that's what's going to happen there. And uh, I would invite you to come. It's at 2 o'clock. Uh, join us and, uh, and be a part of that. There are people stepping forward saying, I want to follow Jesus. And as their church family, we want to say, we're there to walk that out with you. Okay? Uh, and then last of all, uh, in two weeks, July 31st, we have our church picnic. And you might hear church picnic and think, oh, yeah, eight or ten families will get together in some cozy little yard or whatever. No, this is whole church picnic. We're inviting all of you, especially if you're new and you're just coming to the church, you're trying to develop connections with people. This is a great way. Just come and bring some food to share and, and uh, join us at Camp Lyra for a picnic um, on the 31st. So I want to please uh, make you aware of that as well. So with that, if you will, let's pray. And uh, this morning we get to look at Daniel chapter 6, Daniel and the lion's den. How long has it been since you've studied this? Uh, maybe since Sunday school for some of you, but we're going to pray. Lord, thank you uh, for your timeless word that instructs us when we're little kids in Sunday school. And it instructs us when we're big kids 
and we know now more than ever, uh, we don't have life figured out. So we come to your word, Lord, for wisdom and knowledge and understanding. We want to know you, the God of the scriptures. We don't just want to know this book and have it burned into our mind. We want to know the God of this book, the God of this revelation, and the reason for which it was given. So uh, to that end, Lord, we commit ourselves now to listening and to the study uh, of your holy word, and we open our lives to the instruction of your Holy Spirit. Teach us and guide us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, This morning's text in Daniel 6, probably one of the most well-known stories, right, in all of the scriptures, right there with David and Goliath. Uh, It's it's the, you know, nearly every kid who went to Sunday school uh, could tell us the plot lines uh, of this story. Um, Daniel in the lion's den, this is the stuff of veggie tales, right? (laughs) Adventures in Odyssey and every Sunday school curriculum in America. Unfortunately, I think we might leave it there and not bring it forward in our lives. Um, And in fact, usually when we think about this particular narrative, we, we probably think of, especially as kids, we thought of the, the lion's den. That was the thing that captured sort of our heart's fear and imagination and intrigue. And uh, it was interesting to me as I was studying and preparing this week and reflecting upon this. It wasn't for me this time the lion's den that seemed to be the most ominous thing in the narrative. Uh, what really seemed to me to be the scary figures in the story, or the real lions, you might say, are Daniel's peers. <laughs> who conspired against him, uh, to betray him, to ensnare him out of jealousy and out of anger towards his faith. And for me, these guys were the real lions. And uh, so therefore, the title of the message, Living with Lions. Because the reality is that you and I probably won't ever be faced with a pit of lions that we would be tossed into or be fed to wild beasts, although some Christians in history have been. We probably won't face that, but every one of us lives with lions in our lives day in and day out. Uh, These lions are those that are ravenous because they are against the Lord. And they are against his people, they are against his revelation and against his proclamation. And they set themselves up against the Lord's people and they try to discredit and defame and they try to oppose our faith. And one of the ways we see this happening, especially uh, in today's day and age in our nation, is continual opposition against religious liberty. And we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. Um, Because I think Daniel's encounter with his political foes here may be one of the most appropriate events to reflect upon in light of our present day situation where religious liberty is continually, persistently, and increasingly under attack. And that's one of the things that we're facing in our nation. And I think you guys know me well enough to know I'm not a doomsday guy. I'm not the boy who cried, what did he cry? Wolf. Roof. You guys, you heard about my fears of heights last week. I'm not the boy who cried, roof, wolf. Uh, I, I, I don't take the bait for every political skirmish or every disappointing bit of news. Um, and then, but I, it is striking to me how quickly things are changing around us and the steady onslaught of attacks that those who wish to worship freely are facing. And uh, so let me just give you a couple of examples of those. Uh, Not too long ago, I was asked as a pastor to attend a public event and to lead the event in prayer, to lead out in prayer. But I was specifically asked not to pray in the name of Jesus. 
I want you to think about that. And I'm not trying to, you know, applaud myself or put myself on a pedestal, but somebody had the gall to go to a pastor, someone who represents the Lord, and is committed to him to say, would you pray for this event, but not in the name of Jesus. I'm not a chaplain for ceremonies, okay? I'll just tell you that right now. And uh, I was almost shocked that someone could utter the words to me. Uh, Right now, there is a bill in California called SB 1146. Maybe you've heard about this. And it is threatening particularly religious schools. Uh, My alma mater is Biola University. And there are a number of other Christian um, higher education schools in the arena. And uh, dozens of them. And this particular bill sets out to restrict their liberty or to restrict their exemption uh, as a religious institution to certain kinds of practices. In other words, right now they enjoy the privilege of hiring only believers, of maintaining a, uh, an enrollment of only believers uh, to uh, instruct students that they need to go to chapel as a part of their education and take certain religious classes as a part of their education. And this bill would undermine all of that for dozens of schools, Christian schools and seminaries in Southern California. And uh, so they're doing battle on that right now. Uh, there also is, many of you probably know this or have faced it, there's continued legislation and public policy that continues to be written, especially in healthcare. Uh, one we have seen recently, which restricts uh, the rights of medical practitioners to um, re- reject a request to, to perform an abortion and to do so out of their, their conscience, to say that I, I'm not comfortable with this, this goes against my beliefs and I can't do it. And there are now... Uh, policies that restrict one from being able to say that. Uh, and there are, of course, other policies that restrict uh, any number of businesses from, from refusing to provide services that go against their conscience. So we're seeing this more and more, right? And you're probably seeing it in your respective fields as well. Uh, the, fu- the situation that we find ourselves in, I don't think is too unlike what Daniel finds himself in, uh, in this particular instance here, where a policy... Uh, or a lawmaking effort here was set up to restrict the free exercise of religion. Daniel faced it. We're facing it. So we ought to look to Daniel and, uh, and learn from him. And these are the questions we're going to consider. How do we as Christians live among the lions of today's culture? Uh, whether they're institutions or policies, or whether they're an individual that we rub shoulders with at work or in the neighborhood. How do we respond to these policies and these people that oppose our faith and our God and restrict the freedom to worship him as our conscience and as the scriptures direct us? Uh, the landscape of our nation is changing. And I'm not saying that it's, it's such that we can't be Christians anymore, but one thing is very clear. It's just quite frankly going to be harder. It's going to be more costly uh, than what we are accustomed to. And it seems to me that's going to be the trajectory until the Lord returns. So let's gear up, Christian, and get ready for what's coming. And so we find here in Daniel 6, first of all, there's three real you know, parts to this story, this true story. The first is that a trap is set. Daniel 6.1. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. 
now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. What a compliment to be said of one. Could it be said of you? I wonder. Finally, these men said, We'll never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Okay. We left off last week and we saw basically that the remarkable city of Babylon had been overtaken in a, in a really uh, brilliant military remover. We saw the slaying of Belshazzar, who really was this pompous playboy prince uh, who was ruling and exercising, uh, re- really having a party in the midst of an ongoing attack. And just as God had revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar years earlier, the, the, in, in his vision of this, of this uh, statue with, with different layers to it, just as God had revealed to him, the golden head Babylon has now fallen to Medo-Persia. Just as God had predicted. The mighty, impenetrable city of Babylon had been destroyed, and that had been done without a battle inside the walls because of the way they came in through the sluice gates, if you remember And so Darius the Mede, he put to death um, Belshazzar. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, has appointed Darius the Mede to rule over Babylon. And so we pick up in chapter 6 with Darius basically setting up his cabinet, his rulers, his leaders for the newly conquered Babylon. And what is interesting to me is that every time there's a regime change, Daniel rises to the top. You notice that? Like every time, three different nations, three different rulers, and Daniel is continually selected. So great was his character, his skill, and his distinction among his peers. We saw it coming out of Jerusalem into Babylonian captivity, and he was selected for leadership. We saw it as the kingdom shifted from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar. He was selected again for leadership and to intervene in this situation. And now as it goes from Belshazzar to Darius, a whole new nation, he is yet again, uh, his reputation precedes him, and he's appointed uh, for leadership. Uh, Could it be said of you? I I, want to just sort of challenge you as a Christian, not because we earn our right standing with God by our well-lived lives, But God needs key leaders in key places uh, of authority and exercising God-given gifts with distinction. It is one of the ways that we can make an influence for the kingdom of God. And Daniel was continually chosen. Would you? Are you distinct among your peers for your faithfulness and your skill and your distinction of character? One of the things that we learn in this, though, is really the sobering reality that even the righteous suffer 
and face opposition. We know this from the story of Joseph, betrayed by his brother, sold into slavery, mistreated at Potiphar's house, arrested under false charges, forgotten in jail, and yet uh, he was uh, righteous, but he suffered. Uh, We see it in Job, a man who was righteous and and distinct among the living, and yet uh, he suffered. And in fact, God allowed it and even brought it into his life by way of testing him. Uh, We see it in Daniel's life, and we see it supremely in Jesus. He suffered. The righteous suffer. We do not live in a do-good, get-good world. And don't expect that. Now, the proverbial wisdom that we find in the scriptures tells us that if we live according to God's ways and to God's commands and we fear him, it tells us to do this so that life will go well for us, right? We find that. Let's, the answer is yes. Go ahead and nod with me. Yes, that's true. That's what the Proverbs tell us. And the law also says the same as it's given to Israel. It says to do these things and to obey the law so that it will go well with you, so that you will prosper, these kinds of things. And so we understand that God does give us these instructions in the law and the Proverbs so that we will set a general pattern of life which is good and which is wholesome and which is for our best by our designer, by our creator as he knows. And that's, that's the true matter of things. Uh, Derek Kidner has written this. He's a, a scholar about uh, Old Testament wisdom books. And I love what he says here. He says, the Proverbs tells us how to pattern a general course of life so that things will go well for us. And the Psalms help us cope with life when it doesn't go according to the proverbial p- pattern. Right? And do you notice there's a lot more Psalms than Proverbs? So yes, we learn the law of God and we love his ways and we practice the wisdom that we find in the Proverbs and we hope that it will go well for us and we hope that that pattern and wisdom will line things out well for us. But there are times when it will not. And the Psalms especially provide us with real life honesty and permission to question and struggle and lament and complain and to take those to the Lord. And yet even in the Psalms, they inevitably at the end hook back to and turn our hearts Godward in trust. You'll notice too, um, if you remember, last year we, we studied the book of Psalms through the summer. That was our summer series. And the Psalms uh, are actually arranged in a five-book formation. I have this information for you on the back of your handout in case you've forgotten it. And the arrangement of the Psalter, the way we have it today in this five-book formation, actually comes to us from 5th century Judah. As they were leaving Babylonian exile, they took the Psalms that had been in existence and they reordered them to make for themselves a hymn book of worship whereby they would rehearse their story with God, his faithfulness to them in the midst of all of the opposition that they encountered. It was the way they continually tuned their hearts to the goodness of God in the midst of opposition. And I mean to say all of this or highlight all of this by way of convincing you, I hope, the righteous suffer. But maybe just pay attention to your weak and you'll see it. And in fact, sometimes we suffer not just coincidentally being righteous. Sometimes we suffer for our righteousness. And that can be the very thing um, that provokes others, as it did for Daniel here. Maybe the accurate sentiment is, especially the righteous will suffer. 
I'm not quite sure how to square that with all of the Proverbs, but it seems to be the truth. We find here that it was Daniel's devotion that was actually used against him. And I told you at the beginning of the series, if you remember, that Daniel is one of these figures in the scriptures that is so honorable. In fact, we can hardly find a comparable figure. Uh, He is the only one in all of the scriptures with the exception of Jesus of whom we know no wrongdoing. Now, I'm not saying he was perfect. We know that can't be the case. Uh, we know that, but we don't know exactly what his imperfections or wrongdoings were. They're not told to us. Um, it could be because he's the author of this book and, you know, <laughs> put his best foot forward. I tend to come out rosy in my own stories too, but um, we don't know of his wrongdoing. We know him to be a man of devotion. He was a man of integrity. He was a man of whom you could set your watch by. He was the same man when nobody was looking as when he was when everybody was looking and when everybody was watching even when it was hard to be himself and to love the God that he loved. How wonderful if that could be said of us. And so we find in the chapter here this bill, if I can call it that, is proposed and ratified and made a matter of law. We can call it SB 6, 8, and 9. Right? Daniel chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. 30 days, no one can pray to or through any person except Darius. One observation I would make about this is this, and you know this to be true, uh, and that is that prayer can be prohibited, but it can never be stopped. Right? It can never be stopped. I love the old bumper sticker. You've seen it, which says, as long as there are tests, there will always be prayer in schools, right? (laughs) That is true. Um, And I'll tell you, and I think you guys know this, I mean, particularly this is common among uh, Baptist doctrine, but I'm, I'm all for separation of church and state. I think it's a great thing. And, and that may seem controversial or weird to you that I would say that or even uh, be so proud about it, but I really am because here's the thing. I don't want somebody to go into the school who has a different faith than my own and lead an assembly of children in prayer and put pressure on them to think that they ought to pray to some God that they've never even heard of. You know what I'm saying? I don't want that. I don't want that for our kids. I don't want that for my kids. I want the liberty for my child to exercise his or her faith as they understand the Lord and as they spend time in his word. I want the freedom for them to do that, and I want the freedom for myself to do that. I don't want to live under constraints. Uh, You'll find something interesting in our schools these days, and I want want your attention to be on this and your radar to be up for it. Our Constitution affords us the right of freedom of religion. But there's been a really interesting change in a preposition in that that particular phrase. And what you will hear people say now is freedom from religion. No way. That is not what our Constitution says. And, and, I, and I, I don't want to sit here and preach to you our Constitution because that's a human document, right? Written for one nation for a particular window of time for however long the Lord intends America to persevere. And I'm here to proclaim to you the truth of the Word of God, which stands forever. Okay, And it's for all people, for all time, and for all places. And I want to remind you that we are Christians first. And our nationality and allegiance to whatever nation that is, is second. 
And I think that's really important because there seems to be quite a faction of people in America today who are, and this is going to get me in trouble, but bring it on, I say, uh, who are for, you'll see the mantra, God and country. Okay? Now that sounds really good, as long as we're saying God and country. But what I think when most people say that, what they mean is God and country. If you're listening online, I'm interlinking my fingers here. And the implication of that is that you have to ask America into your heart in order to be saved. Okay, let that sink in. I didn't, I didn't get my words wrong as I'm prone to do. But that's what's behind that. We're Christians first. Our nationality is second. And we ought to be good citizens in whatever nation God places us to be. And we ought to fight for the best of society while we're there. But our hope and our trust is not in nationalism. It's in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is in the infusion of the Holy Spirit into people's lives who change them from the inside out. That's what we're about as Christians. We are Christians first. And whatever nationality we are is second. And so prayer is not something that any institution or policy can ever stop. We find Israel when they were enslaved in Egypt and they were oppressed and they were fatigued and tired and worn out and distraught. They petitioned the Lord. It says their cries went up to him and he heard their prayers. Prayer cannot be stopped whether we're exiled or whether we're in a country that champions Religious freedom. It cannot be stopped. Nor is prayer just a mechanism to leverage God to give us what we want and to pry gifts from his hands. Prayer is a privilege to enter into the presence of the living God and to linger there and to be with him and let the truth of his nature and his goodness wash over us. And from that awareness to compel from us requests which please him and which honor him. And that's prayer. And nothing can stand in the way of that. Not even our own struggles to prayer. This might be surprising to you. I mean, probably each and every one of you who gets to a point in time where the issue of the day is so heavy, so burdensome, so frustrating, that when you go to pray, all you find is a downward glance and glassy-eyed and no words will come. Anybody ever been there? This week? You know, I have. This week. This morning? Yeah. We get there and we go, I don't even know how to pray for this. I don't have the words. I don't have the right thoughts. I don't have the right heart. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to say. My posture, the heart of my posture is in prayer. It's in coming to the Lord. But I don't have the words. And the scriptures affirm to us in Romans that the Holy Spirit helps us when we don't know how to pray. And he transforms even a heart's ache into words and groanings that we couldn't even fathom or understand. He takes our inability to articulate prayer, transforming it into a masterpiece and taking it to the Father and advocating for us. Prayer can't be stopped and you can't even get in your own way. The Holy Spirit helps you. He helps you. And so here we have this old feller, Daniel, an octogenarian at this point, 80 years old. This man has set his life around the pattern of prayer. And it is in this moment that the pattern he has kept will now keep him. It will hold and sustain him in a most difficult hour. So we move to the second part of our story. The trap was set and now the trap is sprung. Verse 10. 
Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Did you hear that? Just as he had done before. This was his life's pattern. This was his habit. These men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, uh, anyone who prays to any God or human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? What a stupid question. The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, "Uh, Daniel, who as one of the exiles from Judah pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing, he still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember your majesty that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. The stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. And he could not sleep. And at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near to the den, he called out to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lion's? How long did it take? Can you imagine the quiet in that moment? Will I hear something? Will I hear something back? May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and he gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Still a great story, isn't it? And so what we find of Daniel is that he maintains his devotion. He maintains it. Daniel was a man of integrity. What you see was what you got. He didn't overstate himself and shrink back from from his uh, perception and reality. He was the same man when people were watching as when they weren't. He was the same man when worship was easy as when worship was hard. He was the same man before the king's edict and after. He was a man who had been shaped by his devotion to the Lord. Three times a day he prayed. And I will tell you, this is an example to us that we never outgrow the need for discipline in our life. Did you hear that? We never outgrow it. You know, we, we put up gold foil star charts on our fridge for our kids to teach them certain ways. And we put practices and disciplines helping them to learn how to pray. And, and when we're early in our discipleship, we do specific things that, like memorizing scripture when we're in Awan or how to learn the Bible or the books in order. And we, we do all of these things and we do them as a regiment, as a matter of discipline so that we'll learn them. And then we get to be old and we get to be adults and we stop doing them. 
as though we had arrived. And the reality is we always need discipline in our life and we need patterns and habits, not just to form who we are, but to hold us for when life goes sideways on us, because it will. It's a matter of time. The day of trouble is coming, and your habits and your disciplines will show whether or not you're ready for it. They keep us, and they form us. There's a great book by uh, James K.A. Smith that has recently come out. It's called You Are What You Love. Uh, You've probably seen it around. Um, I'm just starting it. Uh, My wife is well into it, and I'll be honest with you, most of the good books that I come across are books that my wife tells me I ought to read, and she's already beat me to them. And uh, this is one of them. He's got a great quote in here about the habit of worship. He says, The practices of Christian worship Train our love. Think about that. The practices of Christian worship train our love. They are practice for the coming kingdom, habituating us as citizens of the coming kingdom of God. Practices of worship. See, Daniel maintained discipline and devotion in his life, in his prayer and his dependence on the Lord. And guess who else did that? Jesus Christ. And if these men did that and maintained their devotion and needed to, how much more so do we? We see that Daniel was no secret disciple. Throughout his life, when the chips were down, when it was risky and it was costly, he stood for the Lord, come what may. It really shows us that our habits are what will shape our heart and will hold us in the time of trouble. I think of Paul's statement where he says in the New Testament, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I love that. He basically, you know, steps out and gets in your face and says, I'm invincible. In this life, I'll live for the Lord. And if you want to come and take my life, I'll get to be with Jesus. That's graduation day. So come at me. What do you got? You got nothing. I'm the Lord's. We see the same sentiment in Acts 5 when Peter and his companions were preaching the gospel and were brought before the Sanhedrin and they were specifically instructed that they were not to preach any longer in that name. They were flogged and were told at the end of it that first of all, that they would had to obey God rather than man, but they were told at the end of it that they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. They were invincible. We see something here from Daniel's life. We, we see that he knowingly broke the law. He broke it, which shows us that there is a higher law than man's law. There is God's law. And I want to say in this, Plainly and matter-of-factly, but sincerely, there is a time for civil disobedience, Christian. We see this in Daniel's life. We see it in the first century apostles. That's part of our faith. And there may be times when the law of the land and the law of God come into conflict. And if and when they do, as a Christian, we always obey the law of God. And Now, it's easy to say that, right? <laughs> How easy that just rolls off the lips. The other thing I think we need to recognize is this. There's an implication of doing so. We will also need to accept the consequences of that. 
And that becomes a whole separate step there. So let me give you some examples. Biola, my alma mater, Christian University in Southern California, who's facing this bill, which threatens uh, the very nature of their, uh, their ministry and their education there, they may need to say, okay, we're no longer going to receive any state funding. Now, they're a private school, so they're not subsidized by the state, but they receive funding by way of scholarships that students might get, such as the Cal Grant. And they may have to say, fine, we won't take any state funding, any grant, any scholarship of any kind. They may have to accept that in order to maintain what they're doing. They may have to relocate and say, if we can't do this in the state of California, then we're going to relocate and we're going to be who we are in a place that will allow us to exercise our freedom of religion. They, they may need to exercise their convictions and suffer for doing so. Um, let me sort of take it out of the institutional realm and bring it down to maybe some of us personally. If you're in the medical industry, the scripture is clear. The sanctity of life is paramount. And if asked to perform an abortion, you as a medical provider simply cannot do so before God with a clear conscience. And you may have to stand up for that and say there is a higher law here than the state law or the medical law. There is God's law. And that may mean you have to set your job aside and go, I can't do this any longer. And wouldn't it be wonderful if so many Christians stood on principle that the very best and brightest of the workforce had to step back from things that the world would take notice and say, we're losing ground because we're losing Christian service. Let me bring it all the way home to me. As a pastor, I never thought I would see this day, but as a pastor in America, the day may come when I am not afforded the liberty to preach the gospel in its entirety or to preach the whole counsel of the word of God without suffering some kind of persecution or backlash. And I want to tell my own self and my brothers, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And I had better be prepared in my own heart and life to suffer for that. Even though the world may come out me and say, well, this is hate speech. And I would say, no, this is the word of God and he loves you. And if you have to incarcerate me for that, then bring it on to live as Christ, to die as gain. And I'll rejoice to be able to suffer shame for my Lord who was shamed for me, right? He was shamed for us. And so if these acts of Obedience and sacrifice. By these things we entrust ourselves to the Lord and we will be making conspicuous the measure of our devotion. Our faith is not a peripheral aspect. It's not a weekend hobby. It's not something we could take or leave as life affords us opportunity. It's the most important part of who we are. It is the central feature of our life. And if the state and the general public don't know that, then we may have opportunities and occasions of suffering to shed light on that fact. And that won't be easy. Um, I've been thinking a lot about this this week. And I'm not eager to suffer. But as I have let this kind of sink in, and wash over me, I really do. My Lord suffered for me. And it really would be a privilege to suffer for him. I'd rather not. But I will. And so Daniel entrusted himself to the Lord. It's made clear by the phrase, just as he had done before. 
maintained his devotion in prayer. So Daniel consistently, whether it was food orders or worship orders or prayer restrictions, none of these things made an impact on Daniel. In fact, the whole book starts off with this beautiful phrase, right, that Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He resolved. He'd made his decision in advance. And then he walked it out, continually entrusting himself to the Lord. And we find that God delivered Daniel. Now we need to be careful here because the reality is that God chose to deliver Daniel, but that's no guarantee that he will deliver each one in every case, every time, right? We remember the words of Daniel's very wise teenage buddies when they said, We know that our God is able to save, but even if he doesn't, we'll never bow to you, King Nebuchadnezzar. And there is our sentiment. That is what we need to hold. He does not save in every occasion, though he could. Ask Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who was lynched for his faith, or the reformers who were burned at the stake, or Jesus our Lord, who suffered. And we also know that while God is able to save, many times it is the suffering itself and the struggle that one goes through where God is actually doing his work as it was with Jesus Christ. It was in his suffering that redemption was being achieved. And so we don't always know what God is doing in suffering. We may wish it away, but it may well be the very work that he is performing is in that act. We see the third part of our story here. The ungodly are caught in their trap. And, um, you know, Proverbs 11.10 says that when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. And I've been kind of thinking all week long about where's the corresponding proverb to that that says when boneheads are caught in their stupidity, everybody rejoices. Uh, If you can find that, I'd like that this week and send that on my way. I appreciate that. But here we find quite a turn of events in verse 24. The king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Can't rejoice in that. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language and all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And so what we find here is this, that God defends his faithful servant. He does that in this case. And we, while we wish that that were the case all of the time in every instance on earth, we know that it is not. However, our God's character... And our fate is not simply sealed on the earthly plane here. The nature, the nature and the character of God superintend that. And our life's joy is not simply found in the circumstances we experience here in this earthly plane. Because we long for a future and eternal home. We're told in the scriptures we're what? Aliens. Strangers. I recently heard the word that kind of pushed me back a little bit, immigrants. (laughs) We're aliens, strangers, and immigrants on planet Earth longing for an eternal home. Okay. 
we also find that God will defend his own name. And this is incredibly reassuring because there are times we want to come to his defense, right? And the reality is that while he chooses to use us in his redemptive program, he does not need us, not at all. We're, we're like the 12th man on a basketball team that gets in when the game is decided. And we're in for garbage time. Uh, I mean, that's true and it's not true. We have a role to play. God uses us. But the game is well in hand. And the victory is the Lord's. It's settled. I want to remind you too of a subtlety in this book that you might have forgotten. But the book of Daniel is written in two different languages, if you remember. It's written in Aramaic and it's written in Hebrew. The first chapter is in Hebrew. As we get into chapter 2 through 6, it's written in Aramaic, which was the common spoken language of the day. It was the international language. And then 7 through 12, again, go back to Hebrew. And as we look at the language, we can understand who that particular part of the book was intended to reach. And so God seems to be speaking specifically through Daniel to the Hebrew community in, in the first chapter and the final chapters. But in these middle sections here, in, these, in verse, or chapters 2 through 6, it seems as though the Lord is wanting to make very clear his sovereign power over the nations, and he wants every nation in the international community to see it and to know it in the common language of man at the time. God defends his own name, and he wants that message to get out, and it does. He wants it to be shared with the masses. I want to close with a quote by Russell Moore. This is another good book that I'm reading titled Onward. It's in your handbook, or your handbook, your uh, outline. And uh, this is a book I've chosen. My wife didn't pass this one on to me, which probably means it won't be as good as the other. But But he says this, and I found this reassuring. He says, I don't accept the narrative of progressive secularization that religion itself will inevitably decline as humanity evolves toward more and more consistent forms of factionalism. As a matter of fact, I think the future of the church is incandescently bright. That's not because of the promises made at Independence Hall, but a promise made at Caesarea of Philippi. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen? Isn't that good? Bring it on, world. The game's decided. And we look forward to a future and a glorious home. Um, I want to ask the worship team if they would come up now. I, I asked Pastor Josh if we could do this song that I have loved for but a year and a half now. It's done by all sons and daughters. And it speaks of, and I want to put these words on your mind as we prepare to sing it. This is going to be a new one for most of us. It speaks of a worshipful defiance. We will praise the Lord. We will declare his name, come what may.